Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. This is episode 15, Storytime, Planting Seeds. With me in the podcast is co-producers Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedkey. Telling stories today are violinist Aaron Dworkin and flutist Kaori Fujii. I'll also share a story from Jean-Pierre Rampal and his autobiography, Music My Love, It's about the Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge Foundation, the benefactor who gave to a future flute sonata. Many thanks to Aaron and Kaori for making time to tell their story about their vision and communicating their human purpose as musicians. I feature from the vault today my recording of Paul Hindemith's Akstuka, eight pieces for solo flute. I also feature the third movement of Poulenc's Flute Sonata. The Akstuka, that was one of the pieces I learned that took me out of my comfort zone. And the Sonata by Poulenc always puts me in the comfort zone. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. We're so glad you're here. I was involved as being a founding member of two wonderful nonprofit flute clubs. Why two, do you ask? Well, the first one was the Atlanta Flute Club, and it was a small village of people. And as soon as we knew that our village had to put on a really big party, known as the 27th National Flute Association Convention in the ATL, we decided to band together. The mission statement is promoting, educating, and encouraging flutists. The second Nonprofit, the labor of love that is the Southeast Michigan Flute Association. This mission statement says to promote the advancement and appreciation of the flute and flute playing throughout Southeast Michigan. So this small village got to work in 2002 in the Mecca of Flute Kingdom, right? The makers, distributors, universities, performers are all, uh, there's an orchestra, right? Within every 100 miles here in Michigan. So it was many towns throughout the land to start this nonprofit. I took seminars and I had lots of assistance to get that tax exempt status. Nonprofit status comes from showing the enormous amount of labor and love that you've been seeking for this group of people, your village. It's your purpose. The impetus behind the nonprofit life is heart. The number one requirement is a big heart with a purpose and a relentless drive for excellence. It comes with the training and it comes with the show. Music is our show and our mission. 
Aaron Paul Dworkin is currently a tenured full professor of arts leadership and entrepreneurship at the University of Michigan's School of Music, Theater, and Dance, and a professor of entrepreneurial studies at the Stephen M. Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. In addition, Aaron is a successful social entrepreneur, having founded the Sphinx Organization, the leading arts organization with the mission of transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. Named a 2005 MacArthur Fellow, President Obama's first appointment to the National Council of the Arts, and former Governor Snyder's appointment to the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, Aaron Dworkin served as Dean of the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. Aaron personifies arts leadership, entrepreneurship, and community commitment with an unwavering passion for the arts, diversity, and their role in society. He has strong interests in politics, innovation, creativity, human pair bonding, and issues of economic and social justice. A multimedia performing artist, author, social entrepreneur, artist, citizen, and educator, Aaron continually receives extensive national recognition for his leadership and service to communities. I enjoy his mentorship on his videos and in his interviews. I've had the honor of simply hanging out with Aaron and his family, and I'm truly honored to have them in my life. One of the most impactful stories that Aaron told was something that is featured on his artist's page. It's his artist statement from his uh, AaronDworkin.com, and it's called Fractured History. And this is what Aaron writes. My path in life as a social entrepreneur, author, artist, and professor originated in music. I am a classically trained violinist, and throughout my journey, my art has depicted as well as been influenced by and expressed through that lens. In addition, my literal existence is steeped in diversity, having been adopted at two weeks of age by a white Jewish couple who were behavioral scientists with a birth son, my older brother, now a cellular biologist, and then 30 years later being reunited with my birth parents, a black Jehovah's Witness father and white Irish Catholic mother and full birth sister who they did raise. My passion for inclusion and social justice has served as the impetus for my life as a social entrepreneur. Meet Aaron Dworkin and listen to his story that he has to offer today. It is so wonderful to be able to have the opportunity to be on this podcast. And thank you so much, Amy. You know, it's interesting. Growing up, I started playing the violin when I was five. My mother was uh, an amateur violinist, and she actually heard this uh, Nathan Milstein recording of the unaccompanied Bach, and she just got a lot more uh, kind of motivated about the instrument from that, and that kind of led to my interest and beginning at an early age. And I was very lucky to have as my first teacher, Vladimir Grafman, who was really one of the great uh, teachers who brought the Russian school of teaching over and taught those like Gingold, uh, who taught, you know, uh, Joshua Bell and many of our other great soloists who you might know today. 
And it was interesting because just at that very early age, I had this opportunity to not only study and learn the violin at a very high level, but I think he imbued in me this sense about excellence. It was funny, you know, he'd always say in lessons, you know, talk, you play. And it always frustrated me because I wanted to talk and usually give excuses for why I didn't practice something, I think. But um, it was this sense of expectation, a very high level of expectation. And I think that's kind of created a consistency in, in my life that I've been able to bring to a lot of my work, which is an internal sense of how can I at least do the best that I am capable of? Whatever that may end up being, I need to, at the end of the day, be able to fall asleep knowing I did my best. I gave it my all. I brought what, for me, that understanding of excellence, which is really the best that I could do in terms of preparation, in terms of delivery, all of that. And, and maybe ultimately we don't ever really accomplish that. Um, but I think that there can be this sense at the end of the day that we really, um, you know, did our best. And then you begin to look forward to what that next chapter is. And uh, so, you know, I was able to continue, uh, you know, my studies originally in New York and then uh, at the age of 10 moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, quite an interesting experience and uh, then continued to study. I would go down to Peabody Prep on Saturdays, study with Earl Sanofsky, then uh, Interlochen Arts Academy for my last two years of high school uh, and then starting out at Penn State and ending uh, getting my degrees at the University of Michigan. And it was here at the University of Michigan's School of Music, Theater, and Dance, then School of Music, that I think that sense of bringing entrepreneurial skill sets to bear to try to impact something that mattered to me came into play. And what had happened before that is that I had started out at Penn State for a couple of years and then really tough financial times. And I was actually out of school for about four years. And during those four years, just by kind of life default, I needed to bring to bear entrepreneurial skill sets, uh, right? I needed to try to figure out how to make sustainable all of these ideas that I had flowing through me. I had environmental issues. I had things I wanted to try and solve with homelessness. You know, I, I was always looking at the world around me and feeling like it could be a better place, that that there are people who are suffering who don't need to suffer as much. There are people who lack opportunities where otherwise those opportunities could be increased, things like that. And so I feel like it's not enough to just think about that and think about, gee, wouldn't it be nice if the world around us was a little better place? But then to say, what can I do about it? And of course, with the violin being the greatest constant in my life and you know, really honing my skills at the University of Michigan, it then kind of all came together for me. I think being, uh, you know, a biracial 
uh, person, but viewed really as black in America. Uh, and thinking about that and having been a violinist and thinking about those issues of diversity and often being the only person of color in classical music environments or circumstances I was in, that led to, again, this sense of, well, that shouldn't be. You know, classical music is this extraordinary medium through which we can express ourselves and look through prisms of culture and and race and gender and even time period, right? We have insight into, you know, 100, 200 years ago through music. Um, and I think we can also foreshadow the future with the music we compose and create today. And so that all kind of led to this sense of, well, could I play a role in diversity in classical music? And that led to, while I was an undergraduate student still at the University of Michigan, founding the Sphinx Organization, which focus uh, was diversity in, in classical music and, and how to be able to try to transform people's lives through this power of diversity in the arts. And uh, then I would say I began to really deploy those entrepreneurial skill sets, uh, which definitely uh, is not always easy. However, when you have a very clear mission in mind, when you have a very clear vision of what you want to see changed or what you hope will exist that does not exist yet, if that's very clear in your head, then all of that work that you do is in service to that. So the persistence, the innovation, the tenacity, uh, the grit that needs to be invoked to be able to make that dream a reality, it's all in service of that vision. And ultimately, at least for me, it makes all that work, A, much easier, and B, um, a necessity, and for me, another path is just not possible. Uh, I can't just sit back and kind of let the world happen around me. I feel driven to at least play a small part in its evolution and trajectory. So uh, those are just kind of a few of uh, my thoughts. And, uh, and again, Amy, thank you so much for inviting me to spend a little time here on the podcast with you. In 2014, Kaori Fujii founded Music Beyond Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit organization that harnesses the universal power of music to bring dignity, inspiration, and hope to developing countries, currently working in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. 
Music Beyond empowers communities in the Democratic Republic of the Congo by engaging local musicians and youth through education, performance, collaboration, and mentorship. Music Beyond offers private and group workshops for musicians through its teacher training program, as well as solo and ensemble performance opportunities. It also offers master classes that focus on best practices for teaching youth. Music Beyond partners with schools, NGOs, and other organizations to offer consulting that helps them to strengthen their music programs and build new curricula from the ground up. They have an event called Art of Hope. It's an annual cross-cultural event that Music Beyond co-created in 2019. This multifaceted event aimed to send a positive message of hope to empower Congolese people. And it shares with the world the strength, talent, and beauty of the country and its people. So what else has Kaori done? She has released eight albums, one of which was shortlisted for a nomination at the Grammy Awards. She still holds the record for being the youngest prize winner for the three biggest music competitions in Japan, which she won consecutively from 1996 to 1998. She was also awarded the second prize in the 44th International Competition Maria Canals de Barcelona in Spain and the 10th International Flute Competition Friedrich Kulau in Germany. I believe Kaori is a friend of the world and an ambassador for change in an underrepresented field of opportunity through music. I'm thrilled she was able to join us to plant the seeds of change we need through her story. Meet Kaori. What is the role of music? What does music do for you? These are the questions I like to ask people, both musicians and non-musicians. And the answers I hear often are, music is something to express emotions, Music is something that makes me happy. Music is something that evokes uh, memories. It helps me to forget all the hard times. It helps me to relax. It helps me to feel. When we think about it, music existed regardless of an era or time, culture, countries, or even religion. We are surrounded by music all the time. And it's not only to feel good, but also it was one of the most primitive form of connecting with, uh, with a higher being. Music is literally for everyone and everything. Music exists on the lives of everyone in the world and something that is necessary for all of us since the beginning of time. It is something that universally speaks to our hearts more than anything else probably. And therefore, we could say that music is something that is most fundamental and essential human need. I would like you to think for a second about what we live on and what we live for. We live on water, food and basic sanitation. All animals do. Without that, we'll be dead. But for us, the human beings, we are wired a little more complicated and we need something to live for as well something to make us happy something to work towards 
to look forward to, something fulfilling. If we don't have something to live for, then why live? That's when depression starts. I have nothing to live for. It's pretty much the worst feeling we can get. Fulfillment makes us human. It gives us strength, dignity, and confidence. And when we are fulfilled, we somehow have less need to be greedy and makes it easier to be kind and empathetic towards others. And music can be a great vehicle for finding that fulfillment. Now, I'm talking as if I always so noble and know it all, but I wasn't. So first, I would like to share my personal journey that led to finding my role in society as a musician. I was born into a musical family in Japan. My dad is a professional clarinet player. My mom and my sister are both professional pianists. And because of that, I sort of lived an extremely fortunate music life, went to the best music high school and music university in Japan, won a bunch of competitions, got one of the best agents at the age of 19, got an exclusive record contract from a major label at the age of 20, went to a grad school in Germany while performing lots of concerts in many different countries, lots of attentions, lots of concerts, traveling and parties. It certainly was flashy and I was enjoying this high standard of living. Several years went by and I briefly moved back to Japan from Germany, but eventually I moved to the States, to New York in 2008. Of course, there were slight ups and downs, but overall I was content with myself and didn't question my career or trajectory of my career too much. Fast forward to January 1st, 2014, 2 a.m. at a New Year party at a fancy New York City hotel. I met a lady, and after chatting for a while, she somehow invited me to speak and perform at a multi-professional summit she was hosting at the Columbia University. I totally was out of my comfort zone, this whole public speaking thing, but somehow I agreed to do it. And this small decisive action, with the help of enough champagne, led to chain reaction that changed my life. Two weeks later, I went to the summit with my prepared speech. My time was uh, sometime in the late afternoon, but I went there from the morning to listen to other guest speakers. As I was listening, I began freaking out because I quickly realized that most of their speeches were about how they were using their skills, talent, and expertise to contribute to the world. Whereas my prepared speech was about how music industry is awesome and frankly, how great I am. That's when I realized, oh my God, my career has been all about me. How many competitions have I won? How many albums have I uh, released? Uh, how many concerts I played? So and so. I somehow did my speech and played a little something and people liked it, blah, blah. But this summit fundamentally challenged my view on being a musician and its role in society. My idea of a musical career shifted from self-validation to finding a bigger purpose. I couldn't stop 
thinking about if there's anything I can do as a musician to make even the smallest of positive impact in a true, meaningful and sustainable way. I kept thinking about it. And one thing I realized was uh, how lucky I've been to have mentors in my life who not only shaped me as a flutist and teacher, but as a human being. So I thought maybe I can find a way to pay it for it. And that's how Music Beyond was born. Music Beyond is a US nonprofit organization that harnesses the universal power of music to bring dignity, inspiration, and hope to the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. And we currently run four programs teacher training program, women's empowerment program, curriculum building for local schools, and creating a format to empower different artistic talent that exist in Congo. Congo is one of the richest countries on earth in terms of minerals and natural resources. Number one producer of gold, number two producer of diamond and copper, and by far the number one producer in coltan and cobalt, which are essential for making anything electronics from computers, microwaves, smartphones, electric cars, as well as creation of renewable energy. There is $24 trillion of untouched mineral existing in Congo today. There is waterfall so strong that could provide electricity to the entire continent of Africa. Yet, because of decades of non-stop wars, conflict and corruptions, it is now one of the poorest countries on earth where 95% of population don't have a steady source of income and live with $1.5 a day in average. Majority of neighborhood don't have reliable electricity or water, and many can't afford to send their children even to an elementary school. So what does that do to people? People tend to be very angry and given up hope. They don't expect things to change. They don't expect things to get better. They just go through lives in a pure survival mode, with nothing to live for and take everything from anyone by any means while they can. And that mentality results in more chaos and hopelessness. But there are groups of people who are doing everything in their power to stay hopeful while building and rebuilding and sustaining their community from the ground up. And some of them are doing so through music and arts, and that's whom we work with. I asked the musicians why they play music. Some said, because it gives me hope. Others said, when I'm playing music, I can forget about all the problems outside. And somebody else said, because we want to live like a human being. And that's exactly what I was talking about earlier, having something to live for, the fulfillment, because that makes us human. That enables us to live like human beings. We feel happiness, we feel joy. That makes us empathetic towards others. Then, when the, then we can begin wanting to help others or contribute to your community. And that healthy development and cycle is vital for changing a society for the better, regardless of where we are, US, Japan, Congo, wherever. 
These Congolese musicians taught me the real power of music, the power that enables us to live like a human being. Music may not be able to change the world, but music can change people, and people can certainly change the world. When musicians are handed a new piece of music, we often want to know the story behind it. So we wonder where the composer was when they wrote the piece, or what they were going through, or who they wrote it for, and when was it premiered? How was it written? How did it come to be? What were the seeds that were planted? Well, I really enjoy this story from Jean-Pierre's autobiography with Deborah Wise called Music My Love. It's from 1989, and I have the hardback. It's um, published by Random House, and you can still get it. And this story is from Chapter 11. It's called, Thank You, Elizabeth Coolidge. Thank you. So, quoting Jean-Pierre Rampal, he writes, Even in the 50s, with my career progressing steadily in Europe, I knew that my next real challenge was the United States, America fascinated me, not least because of its tremendous size. So even while I was starting to play in major concert halls in London, Paris, and Berlin, my sights were set on the new world. My records were already on sale there, but I had no idea of what sort of reception I'd get in person. Would Americans want to listen to a French flutist? Robert and I took off to find out. If there's anyone to thank for giving me the opportunity, it's Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge, or perhaps more accurately, the Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge Foundation at the Library of Congress in Washington, which arranged my debut. And the story all started with a phone call in 1957 from Francis Poulenc. Jean-Pierre, you know you've always wanted me to write a sonata for flute and piano. Well, I'm going to, he said. And the best thing is that the Americans will pay for it. I've been commissioned by the Coolidge Foundation to write a chamber piece in memory of Elizabeth Coolidge. I never knew her, so I think the piece is yours. That sounds wonderful, I replied, but will they accept a piano and flute sonata instead of a chamber work? I just don't think I can write a piece of chamber music. I wrote a very bad string trio. And I tried to do a string quartet, but it's even worse. It's still unfinished. I really only succeed when I'm writing for two distinct voices. It's perfectly true. Poulenc's sextet for wind quintet, which makes up one of the voices, plus piano, is wonderful. As, of course, is his vocal work. And later he used to say of his flute and piano sonata, 
Just imagine what would happen if I transcribed it for flute and orchestra. It would be absolutely dreadful. He was right again. Lennox Berkeley, a fairly prolific English composer with normally a very fine musical intelligence, did actually orchestrate this sonata. It was just as well Poulenc never lived to hear it because I'm sure he'd have put his hands over his ears in horror. I was once asked to play the piece with the added orchestral accompaniment and firmly refused to do so. Absolutely not, I said. It's vulgar. A month or so after we'd talked about the sonata, Francis phoned again. He was in mid-rehearsal for his extraordinary Dialogues of the Carmelites at the Paris Opera. But he said he'd finished a version of the flute sonata and would like me to come and play it with him. Francis lived in a top-floor apartment overlooking the Jardin du Luxembourg, near the little square which today bears his name. His place was small but comfortable, a grand piano dominating the living room. His angular frame was similarly imposing, and though you couldn't call him handsome, his features were all larger than life, especially his ears. He had a forceful charm that was quite winning when he was not suffering from the depressions that would so often haunt him. When I arrived, he handed me the music, or rather a scrap of music. We will play it together, he said. It will be very good. I was not so sure. The first movement seemed disjointed and there wasn't much of a theme or direction. The ideas came and went and had no real coherence. And some of the fingerings were impossible. I said so. This is how I work, he replied. You will see, it will be very good. Not long afterwards, he called me again and asked if I'd come over and try some of the revisions he'd done. When I got there, I saw that his ideas were more coherent this time, but still far from finished. You take this, he said when we were through, handing me the music. See if it's playable. So off I went with a collection of bits and pieces that didn't resemble a flute sonata at all. We worked this way for several months, with me periodically showing up at his apartment, trying out whatever he'd written, and then taking it away with me. I did change a few phrases here and there, and gave Francis some ideas as to how the work should hang together. But I must admit that at the beginning I was rather panicky. I simply couldn't see where the piece was going, and was very much afraid Francis couldn't either. Yet he became more confident, and slowly but surely the sonata for flute and piano took its final shape. In January 1958, the Coolidge Foundation gave Poulenc permission to perform the piece, with me playing the flute part at the Strasbourg Festival. The Washington, D.C. debut was set for Valentine's Day. I arrived in Strasbourg two days before the concert in order to have plenty of time to practice with Francis. Poulenc was not noted for his punctuality at rehearsals and sometimes hadn't even learned his part by the time the concert was supposed to begin. I once asked him, we were making a recording at the time, if he'd studied his part. Not much, he said, but when I come to the bits I don't know, I can always keep my foot on the pedal. Unfortunately... This is an option a flutist doesn't have. Many's the time I'd have liked to have a pedal I could hold down in order to see my way through a bar that was mastering me. On the morning before the first performance, Poulenc called me. 
Arthur Rubinstein is here. He said, I've just talked to him and he very much wants to hear my new sonata. The only trouble is he has to leave tomorrow before the performance. Do you think you could come over right now and have just one more rehearsal? With pleasure, I replied. So the unofficial premiere of the Poulenc Sonata for flute and piano took place in a concert hall in Strasbourg with an audience of one, Arthur Rubinstein, sitting in the middle of the front row. The applause we received from him was as memorable as any concert I've played. Twenty years later, when we ran into each other in the Drake Hotel in New York, the first thing Arthur said to me was, do you remember the premiere of Francis's flute sonata in 1958 during the Strasbourg Festival? The reputation of Rubinstein's fantastic memory is not false. How could I ever forget? Rubinstein's enthusiastic response meant a very great deal to me, and the sonata itself was responsible for launching my career in the United States. It will always hold a special place in my memory. When the first edition was published, I was credited with editing the flute part, but unfortunately my name was misspelled. So much for prosperity. This small little excerpt is what Francis Poulenc wrote in his opera, The Dialogue of the Carmelites, and he inserted it into the third movement of his flute sonata. I went to the vault to play it for you. I'm playing here in this recording with Katie Leung. You've also been listening to excerpts from Paul Hindemith's Akshtuka, Eight Pieces for Solo Flute. That's on my CD, Pasakalia. You can hear more about Kaori Fujii at her website, kaorifujii.net, K-A-O-R-I-F-U-J-I-I.net. She's also going to be interviewing the man behind the success of Music Beyond in the DRC. His name is Mr. Jan Folo, and she'll be interviewing him about the current situation and giving updates on their community. AaronDworkin.com is the website to find out everything about Aaron Dworkin, his art, his books, arts engines, not to mention Aaron Asks Videos. I'm so glad you were able to join us today in the podcast. Next time, we'll be featuring some of my students who have had great success at auditioning. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.